1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received this spirit. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, we live in a world of gurus, a world of experts, a world of people offering advice on everything from the ridiculously simple, you know, how to change a light bulb. I'm sure you could find 1,000 or 10,000 uh, YouTube videos on how to change light bulbs, uh, to very profound attempts to speak to uh, deeper meaning in life. So with the internet and social media as platforms, everything is available all the time. So these gur- gurus are always available. They're always at your fingertips. So if you're, it's 3 a.m. and you're having sh- trouble sleeping, well, you can search on trouble sleeping at 3 a.m. and you can find another you know, 10,000 hits to, to meet your need. And these uh, gurus promise happiness, true love, a sleeping baby, a better marriage, money. They can help you caulk your bathroom. And the videos I found actually were helpful. They did help you caulk your bathroom, bathtub. And then these gurus, of course, take on more significant challenges. Uh, Recently, I heard about a book called The Good Life. The Good Life. And the subtitle uh, was Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. That's quite a subtitle, isn't it? Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. And so it turns out this is the, the record of two uh, or, or of a Harvard study, which started in 1941. <clears throat> started in 1941. It's still going. They picked about 1,000 people, and they started tracking these people throughout their lives. And as they got married, they would add the spouses to the study. And as they had children, they would add the children to the study, of course, whoever was willing. And so this has become a, a multiplied study. And so they, 
so the, the, the results of this scientific study of happiness are in this book. So the, there's an MD and there's a PhD who wrote the book, just kind of adding to the kind of the guru status. And of course, it's produced by Harvard, a couple of Harvard guys, and it's a Harvard study. So that adds to the kind of the guru status. And like a lot of uh, modern gurus, there's a mix of, of good insights and then the other stuff. And so their good insight was, uh, in their estimation, the secret to a happy life is good relationships. If you want a predictor for a future, a present and future happiness for a person, you look at someone in their 50s, what, are the, what, are the, what is their life going to be like in their 80s? Will they be living the good life? Well, look at their relationships. That's a great insight. But completely missing from the book, and I, I just double-checked, I searched the index just to make sure that I wasn't, I wasn't mis, misquoting here, uh, but completely missing from this book is any mention of Jesus, like zero. So you, you get about a dozen mentions uh, of Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, and uh, you know, good proverbial type sayings which are useful, you know, be in the moment, that kind of thing. Uh, again, good insight. But if you leave out Jesus, and if we take on the words of Paul in Corinthians, if you leave out Jesus Christ and him crucified, it simply isn't the good life. And if it's a pleasant life, you know, if it's a, if it's a better than average life, well, the future life after that is a disaster. Now, you could say I'm being unfair. You could say that no one mentioned Jesus in the study, and therefore it wasn't up to them to speak to that issue. But the result is the same. You know, they're packaging the good life and happiness for us, and they're telling us this is how you get it, and they're leaving out Jesus entirely. And so what that means is this is maybe the best that human wisdom can offer. And of course, you don't want to throw out everything they say. However, that's the best that human wisdom can offer. So all this is to say that our day and Paul's day are simply not that different. Paul's day was a day when human wisdom was elevated. People pursued it. They studied it. They made a living at it. They, they, they went from town to town speaking what they would, they would sell, sell off as human wisdom, and they would expect that people would be interested, and they would, they would make a living at it, maybe a good living at that. But most of them, you know, the rulers of this age and others, were ignoring Jesus Christ and him crucified. So their day is just like our day. I mean, this is Corinth, where this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and obviously Corinthians live in Corinth, or maybe it's not so obvious, but Corinthians do live in Corinth. North Carolinians live in North Carolina, Corinthians live in Corinth. And this city is now about an hour west of Greece, or sorry, hour, hour west of Athens, Greece. So now it's in Greece, then it was in Achaia. So that's, that's uh, geographically where it is, Mediterranean city. And so he's... He's the one who planted the church, and so he leaves that church, he goes on and does other ministry. He hears about how the church is doing, and he thinks, I need to write a letter to them and help them, because they're not thinking straight about some important things. And so what he's going to talk to us a bit today about is God's wisdom. So they're off. They're smitten by human wisdom, and they're forgetting about God's wisdom. And so the passage today is going to help us with God's wisdom. And so this series is being God's people, and if we're going to be God's people, then we need to live by God's wisdom. So the title is God's Wisdom and the Spirit Who Reveals It. God's Wisdom and the Spirit Who Reveals It. So point one is going to be God's wisdom is not human wisdom. And then point two, how to receive God's wisdom. And then point three, who can understand God's wisdom? 
God's wisdom is not human wisdom, how to receive it, and then who can understand God's wisdom. So let's pray. Father, as we, as we read and as we're going to hear more about, we, we see the Holy Spirit all over this passage. And so we know that if we're going to understand spiritual things, understand the things of the Spirit, it's going to be by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us, uh, who are Christians, ears to hear this morning. We pray that your, your Spirit at work within us would give us ears to hear, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us and bring assurance where we need that. We pray for transformation, Lord. We pray that the work that the Spirit began when we got converted would continue even this very moment, that for the next 40 or 50 minutes as we hear about your word in this passage, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would do good work in us. And for those of us who are not Christians, we pray that your Spirit would bring faith, even this very moment. So do your work among us. Holy Spirit, we invite you. We invite you into our hearts and our minds, our lives, our relationships. We invite you. We know that you're here. And yet we invite you. We just, in faith, invite you to do good work among us. We pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one crucified. Amen. All right, point one. God's wisdom is not human wisdom. God's wisdom is not human wisdom. Now, in the sermons in Corinthians so far, we've heard a good bit about wisdom, what it isn't, and a, and a bit about what it is. So we've heard that in terms of what it isn't, we know that it can't be found among the wise men of the day, <clears throat> the so-called wise men of the day, or the debater, or the scribe, you know, people, the, the, the scholars or, or uh, uh, specialists uh, in their various fields who don't know Christ. At best, they give us the wisdom of the world, human wisdom. We get a a vivid picture of kind of what this can look like in Paul's ministry in Athens. So that's the city where he was right before he went to Corinth. And so Paul's ministering there. He gets to Mars Hill. And as Luke is describing what goes on on Mars Hill, uh, this this, uh, seat of learning in the ancient world, he describes it this way. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's not a very flattering description, is it? But that's kind of the exchange of news of the day, human wisdom of the day. And so Paul's immersed in that for, for a period of time, and then, and then he gets to Corinth, and that's why when he gets to Corinth, he says, I did not come to you with lofty speech or wisdom. I've just been doing that for weeks. I want no more of that. I'm just going to get right to it and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's what God's wisdom is. That's the summary of what God's wisdom is in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's, the, it's Jesus Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we kind of have to know that as we get into our, our text, because he doesn't actually say that in our text. But we have to remember that from, from the last chapter, that the message of God's wisdom is the message of Jesus Christ, him crucified, which is the power of God, the wisdom of God. And so now as he unpacks God's wisdom, he drills down into that idea more. So he starts off and he says that among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So I'm not going to bring, bring to you the kind of the, 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 the trendy wisdom of the day, 
that gets, that gets, uh, gets sold in the marketplace as, as wisdom. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give to you true wisdom. We speak true wisdom among the mature. He says in verse six. And then once again, he goes back to what it's not. So in verse six, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So rulers of this age is kind of a, a murky phrase. It certainly means real people. It's not entirely demonic. Uh, it certainly means real people because they're the ones who crucified the Lord of glory, he's going to tell us. And yet there is some aspect where the, there's, a, there's, there's people occupying these positions of power, and yet kind of the evil forces behind them are also implied. So this age, you know, this age is an age of darkness because of the, the diabolical forces that are in play out there. And so these rulers are forceful. They're loud and they're powerful and they can be very intimidating for people like us and people like his readers. And what he tells us ultimately is that they're doomed to pass away and they're fools, and we know they're fools, and they completely miss God's wisdom, and we know they completely miss God's wisdom because they crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8, they crucified the Lord of glory. That's just stupid. It's stupid to see the Son of God and then crucify him. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. So that he's telling his readers, don't be smitten by these guys. You know, if you're, if you're caulking your bathtub, they can be very helpful. But if you want to learn about the true essence of life, don't turn to these guys. They're the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. So then he keeps unpacking God's wisdom, which is not like human wisdom. And so he calls it a secret wisdom. And this, uh, this word secret is, is the Greek mysterion. mysterion for, you know, we, we get our, our word mystery from this. And to us, a mystery is something you... You can't figure out. But in the Bible, when, the, when, when things are talked about as a mystery, it's, it's generally the gospel, which is the mystery of God. And it's the thing revealed. It was hidden. It was secret, but now it's revealed. And so, it's, so mystery means a secret revealed. And that secret is the plan of God in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he calls it hidden. <clears throat> and not just a little hidden, a lot hidden. Because uh, in verse nine, he describes just how hidden the plan of God was. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's how hidden the plan of God was. That's how hidden Jesus was. You know, when he uh, was uh, experiencing the, the, the scene that, that Stephen uh, and Zeke described, you know, Jesus dying on the cross between two thieves, it wasn't like everyone suddenly got it and the gospel just, uh, and conversions rained out and, and the cross became the, the, the place of revival. Uh, no, because the, the mystery was still hidden. Eyes weren't, they were seeing but not seeing. Ears were hearing but not hearing. Hearts were imagining but not imagining. That's all what God prepared for those who love him. So then he says, uh, in terms of the, uh, the wisdom, God's wisdom, he, he tells us the full scope of it. You know, his, uh, if you want to take the timeline of God's history. In verse 7, it's, it's decreed before the ages. It's decreed before the ages. So when did God's wisdom 
develop before the ages, before time, before creation, before Genesis 1.1. It was being contrived in the mind of God, as it were. So it's ancient. And not ancient like 1971, ancient. I was born in 1971. So this is ancient like before everything, ancient. God's wisdom started there. And then this wisdom continues for our glory. So he goes all the way back and then all the way forward for our glory. The result of God's wisdom is that the people who get it will one day experience glory. You know, here we are living in this very difficult world where awful things happen every day all around the world. And yet one day, one day we get to experience glory. We will be glorified ourselves and will be a land that has no unhappiness in it. There will be, there will be no books called The Good Life, you know, the secret scientific study of happiness because it will be endless joy, endless joy, bodies perfect, never tempted to sin. We will never want to sin. There's no accountability groups in heaven where, you know, guys get together and they struggle and they're trying to get over their sins and so they, you know, once a week they meet at, at Panera Bread or something. No, not required. No one will ever want to sin. No one will mistreat anyone. No one will be unhappy. That's what it's going to be like. That's the glory that awaits us. So yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eschatological idea uh, God's wisdom, it opens the door uh, for us, anyway, to that. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his most famous sermon, uh, he preached it June of 1941. It's an interesting time to, to preach this particular sermon, but he preaches it in June 1941, so World War II is raging. Uh, he preaches it at Oxford, actually St. Mary the Virgin, it's an Anglican church there uh, in Oxford, and this is, as I said, this would be his most famous sermon called The Weight of Glory. It's a very powerful sermon. Uh, you've, you've heard this quote, and I'm sure you've heard other quotes from this particular sermon. But the reason I picked this quote is because it, it just captures in a very vivid way this notion that you and I will one day either be nightmarish monsters or, or glorious beyond our belief. So this is, this is his attempt to capture those two futures. It is, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as, as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we, in some degree, uh, sorry, all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspect, circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors 
or everlasting splendors. That's, that's just a, a very powerful idea. So everlasting splendors, did you catch it? That's, he's talking about Christians. Christians are everlasting splendors. You know, we're not confused here. We're not saying that we're the glorious ones in heaven and that God isn't. God is the glorious one. He is the glory of glories in heaven. But compared to us now, you know, the, the we who will be glorified then, you know, us who are glorified, we will be, to some extent, everlasting splendors. So the, the application for that idea, uh, for this idea, is we just can't be. We have to determine not to be too smitten by human wisdom. The rulers of this age, doomed to pass away. And yet, the people of God, everlasting splendors. And so we don't want to be too smitten by human wisdom. We want to see past it. Only God's wisdom leads to glory. Point two, how we receive God's wisdom. Let me read verses 10 through 13. Well, I'll pick it up at verse nine just so you can catch the flow of the sentence. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand or that we might know the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Did you you catch it? It's a passage that has something to do with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? And being spiritual. I think it's a dozen times in those, in those four verses that he, he mentions the Holy Spirit. So how, do, how we receive God's wisdom, it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. And again, remember, God's wisdom is Christ and him crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the, you know, we, I, I read from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 on the matter of first importance. Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose, that he rose again. So that's, that's in some ways the wisdom of God uh, because, of, what it, because of, of the depth that it is that reflects and, and what it opens up to us. But without the Holy Spirit, our eyes will be closed to that fact. It would be like if you're, if you're sitting in just a, a, a total pitch, pitch black room, uh, absolutely no light, and you've been in this room for days, so you're starving. And on the shelf is, is, a, is a shelf full of food. All the food you would want but you have no idea that it's there, much less how to find it. You're not looking for it because you didn't even know it was there. And even if you did know it was there, you couldn't find it because it's total blackness. You can't see anything. And then someone comes in and they turn on the lights. And suddenly, there's all the food you need. A banquet is open before you. Happiness, satisfaction awaits you. Well, that's, that's the Holy Spirit in our lives, opening, turning on the lights and inviting us to eat. 
So some things about the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, he says, these things, you know, these marvelous things that, that uh, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, these marvelous things the Spirit has revealed. And it revealed is that great, that great word apocalypto from ap- or apocalypse. So there's this apocalypse that happens in our souls through the Holy Spirit. And suddenly we, we understand, we can see. These things are revealed. And this, this is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit must reveal these things to us. And then Paul kind of reflects on why is it that the Holy Spirit can uniquely reveal the things of, of, of God. And so he plays out this, this sort of complicated idea, but just like your thoughts are in you, but nobody knows those thoughts unless you speak them. Well, so in, 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 a, in that kind of a way, that metaphorical kind of way, the Holy Spirit is, is as it were, in God, and then, and then God communicates his thoughts through the Holy Spirit, and suddenly you understand God's thoughts. Uh, you know, this, this, this happens in communication, right? I, I, I don't know what you're thinking unless you speak. You know, your body language gives, you some, gives away something, but I, usually I need you to speak. And, and if you know me, and if you live life with me, then you know that is often the case. I don't even give it away with my body language. They don't know that anything is happening inside this body. And yet, I am thinking thoughts, but unless I speak those thoughts, you don't know those thoughts. So the elders are laughing, and my wife, I'm sure, was laughing inside. Uh, and so I, I've just, this refrain continues to happen. You know, just because I think it doesn't mean I said it. Did I not tell you I was traveling tomorrow? I am so sorry. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, that's God to us. Unless the Holy Spirit communicates, we, we don't know God's thoughts. The Holy Spirit is from God he is God and he's from God. He proceeds from God. He's out of God. And so the, the deity of the Holy Spirit is, is in view here. And even what's called the procession of the Holy Spirit, kind of a complicated idea, but the notion that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to us. Uh, I've been, over the last year or so, uh, going back to the Athanasian Creed, which is from about 500. And I won't read the whole thing because it's pretty long, but it is one of the powerful early statements on the Trinity. And especially what it brings out is the place of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read an excerpt of it. It's not, this excerpt isn't too long. Again, this is from about 500. It's called the Athanasian Creed because it reflects the thinking of Athanasius, uh, not because he wrote it. Uh, historians have, have proven that that's the case, but it's, it's gotten called the Athanasian Creed by many Protestants. And so this is, uh, this is our God. So we worship one God in Trinity, in the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. So what the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. 
as there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, almighty is the Son, almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves, co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. Yeah. If, if you ever get a chance to read the Athanasian Creed, uh, please do. That is, a, that is a great use of that 3 a.m. moment when you can't sleep. Search on the Athanasian Creed and just feast on it. It is rich. It is rich. It's not just rich theology, but I love how it's written. There's a very poetic, lyrical quality to it. Well, that's our spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. He is God, proceeds from God. He reveals the truths of God, reveals the thoughts of God to us. But Paul doesn't stop with that. He, keeps, he kind of keeps the chain progressing. So in verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So now the, now the perspective is we, the, we, we God's people, have, have personally received the spirit. And this would be the spirit uh, at conversion or, or, or prior to faith. So we've received the Spirit that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So that we receive the work of the Spirit, then we're able to understand and respond to the things freely given us by God. And that's, that's meant to be an encouraging word in the sense that uh, there's, there's, there's assurance wrapped up in this, that we can know what we believe is true because it's revealed by the Spirit of God. This isn't is a human invention. This is given to us uh, by the Holy Spirit. So, but he continues. So the, 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 the chain of this progression continues. And then you get to verse 13. So now that we've, we've received the Spirit, we've been transformed by the Spirit, we, we can grasp and understand the, the things freely given us by God. And now we share it. Verse 13. And we impart this. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So either the message we, we preach is, God, is God's message, Spirit-inspired message, or the whole act of proclaiming is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is wrapped up in that communication that goes out. And as we're doing this, we are interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You know, the last link in this chain is people receiving this message who are able to receive it because the Spirit is at work in them. So that that whole the Spirit is involved in that entire process. There's no, there's no aspect of that where we, on our, on, our own, on our own reasoning and logic, can do this by ourselves. But the Spirit is at work throughout that entire process to enable it to happen. So Gordon Fee, in his commentary, says it just right. The Spirit is thus the key to everything. Paul's preaching, their conversion, and especially their understanding of the content of his preaching as the true wisdom of God. 
The Spirit is thus the key to everything, Paul's preaching, their conversion, and especially their understanding of the content of his, of his preaching as the true wisdom of God. And the result of that, once that really sinks in, is right where he, he finishes chapter one, which is, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has done it. We're recipients, we're participants even. But God is the one who gets all the glory. He gets all the, the boasting that we're gonna give. So quick application, we'll, we'll develop some more ideas at the end of the sermon, but quick application. This, this notion that the Spirit is the, the necessary active agent in this process, that should make us very prayerful people, shouldn't it? If anything is going to happen in the people that I love and care about and I'm connected to, if anything's going to happen of consequence, of spiritual value, it's going to be by the Spirit of God. Yes, they're going to have to respond. Yes, they're going to have to do work. Yes, that's true. However, if anything's going to happen, the ultimate determining factor is the Holy Spirit at work in them. And so we must pray. So whether it's praying for conversions, you know, if you're a parent raising children, you're praying for the conversion of your children, you know that the Spirit of God must bring uh, that, that, that kindling, that must bring down the fire from heaven on that kindling to make it alive in the, in the Holy Spirit. Or it's praying for friends, or maybe it's praying for our, far- our parents, coworkers, neighbors, whoever it is that we're praying for. We know the Spirit of God must do the work, and so we pray. And along with that, you know, you pray, but then you, you have to get out there and you have to do something, right? You have to speak. You have to act. <clears throat> and so as we're speaking and as we're acting, we're, we're intentionally dependent. So we don't just leave the prayer closet and now it's all up to us. Now we pray, we cry out for God's, God's help, that the Holy Spirit would do his work ahead of us. And then as we're doing the work, whatever that might be, we're doing it in a dependent kind of way, not a self-confident or self-reliant kind of way, but knowing that, no, I do this and the only reason, the only way that I'm gonna be successful and fruitful in this is if the Holy Spirit is here now as I do it. So we're prayerful and we're dependent. Point three, who can understand God's wisdom? Who can understand God's wisdom? So the last three verses, he's basically gonna repeat himself with with some slight variation. But this isn't, we're not breaking really new ground in these last three verses. There's a lot of uh, common themes that we've, we've already heard. But I'll read uh, verse 14 to 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Quoting Isaiah there. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So he introduces this idea of the natural person. Uh, One commentator, Anthony Thistleton, describes this, this person as someone who lives at an entirely human level. You know, God is absent. You know, really that book, The Good Life, that was, that was the natural person. That was a natural people talking to natural people. God was nowhere in that, in that book. Uh, Calvin's translation is pretty strong here. He calls him the animal man. That's pretty good. This is the animal man. 
It doesn't mean everything he could mean by that, but that's, that's still a great phrase. So you have the person living at an entirely nat- human level, or the animal man, however you want to think of that. And the, the distinctive of that person is they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly, ridiculous, silly. You know, they, they, hear us, uh, they, they hear us talking, they watch us living our lives, and they say, you're a bunch of ridiculous, silly people. You know, I don't, maybe you don't have evil motives, but you're just a bunch of silly people. It's folly to them. But then he, then he does make a, a strong categorical statement we don't want to miss. He says they're not able, they're not able to understand. They're not able to understand They're not able to understand those things. Now, that's true because of the effects of sin. Because of sin, our minds don't work like they should. Our reason doesn't work like it should. Our logic doesn't work like it should. Our, our ability to know and interpret the world around us doesn't work like it should because of sin. And yet, this was also true before there was ever sin. So before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were still dependent on God's revelation. They needed God to explain to them how this world works, how his relationship with them would work. I mean, you, could take, you could look at the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God needed to tell Adam, don't eat from that tree. He needed to tell Adam what the consequence would be eating that tree. Adam, just, Adam didn't instinctively know that. He needed God's revelation. And that never, that, that is, so that, that was pre-sin, still necessary, but post-sin, as we live with the effects of the fall all around us, as we live as fallen people, well, how much more true is it? Sin damages our ability to think rightly. Not entirely, but it does damage that. So it's the spiritual person, the person with the Holy Spirit. That's the person that can discern the things of the Spirit of God. And this message isn't, isn't new with, with Paul. This is, we get this, this in the teaching of Jesus. So two passages, one from Matthew 11 and the one from John 6. <clears throat> so at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. They're not able to understand apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The Spirit of God has to be at work in us if we are going to be able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Now, studying the passage, this passage has been misused to present a, to present a kind of two-tiered Christianity where you've got carnal Christians and then the super-spiritual Christians and the carnal, carnal Christians are walking around and they, 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 there's this whole other spiritual realm, uh, blessed life uh, that's, uh, that's awaiting them if they would only live not as carnal Christians but as a, these as super-spiritual Christians. So you have the normal Christian and then you have this kind of spiritual elite class, the kind of two-tiered Christianity. 
But that isn't what Paul's doing here. He's, he's saying there are two classes of people, but it's the person who doesn't believe and therefore doesn't have the spirit, and then it's the person who believes and therefore has the spirit. Those are the classes. So it's two tiers of humanity, two different categories of humanity, but not two different categories of Christians, if that makes sense. So God's wisdom in the spirit reveals it. God's wisdom is not human wisdom. We receive it by the Holy Spirit. Who can understand God's wisdom? It's people who have the spirit, who are Christians. So some application here on evangelism, just to drill down a bit. Now this passage can give the impression that evangelism isn't required. In fact, there's a whole, there's a whole description, a, a label called hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who basically doesn't believe evangelism is necessary because after all, God is the one who chooses, God is the one who saves, God is the one who does it first to last. Why, why get in his way, basically? And we would reject that completely. We don't reject that salvation is all of grace first to last, but we do reject that we shouldn't evangelize because of that. I mean, the Bible is so clear. Every page of the New Testament is, a, is a, in, in a sense, it's an invitation to mission or it's a direct call to mission. <clears throat> I mean, Paul's the one who told us, we preach, we preach Christ and him crucified. Paul doesn't lay out this elaborate truth about our salvation and, say, and then say, therefore, I don't preach because why would I need to? No, he lays out this whole elaborate description of how we're saved and why we're saved. And then he says, I preach, I preach. And we know his preaching was involved with, uh, um, uh, included great suffering, tremendous suffering. And reasoning, he reasoned in the synagogues. He reasoned. He employed his mind to persuade other minds time and time and time and time again. He pulled from the Old Testament as much as he possibly could to argue that Jesus was the Christ and that through believing in him, you would be saved. And so we work really hard to come up with good answers. You know, we're in a conversation with our coworker or a family member. They ask a question that completely stumps us. I've never thought about that before. And so we go away, we study, we think, we do the hard work, and then we come back and we are ready the next time maybe. Or we send them an email, say, hey, I was thinking about a conversation, I did some more research, and, and then we lay it out there. A reasonable answer to their question. That's the New Testament. The New Testament invites us, calls us, compels us. The Holy Spirit compels us to go, speak, to be active in the lives of others. But we do that knowing that the natural person is not able to understand. So we're informed by that, that, that fact that the natural person is not able to understand. So we don't evangelize and we don't defend the faith as if our efforts can open blind eyes. So it, it will never be, the determining factor will never be our reason or logic. You know, a lot of, a lot of times if you, if you think, of, if you hear someone's testimony or you think back to your own testimony and you, you look at, at the exact time you're saved and it's pretty arbitrary. You know, January 20th, 1990, that's when I was saved. Why was it not December 20th, 1990? It's pretty arbitrary. Why was it not, why was it not six months later or six months earlier? It's pretty arbitrary. You know, yes, maybe you were in a, a season of thinking about spiritual things and you did study and research and all that, but why were you saved exactly when you were and not earlier or later? That's because it wasn't time. 
Because God hadn't said, okay, now's the time. Spirit of God, do your thing. So reason and logic, we, we, we use those, we employ those, we work hard with those, but we, do, we don't do them thinking that, that uh, those are what are going to save someone. So we need to hear that. This passage doesn't at all take away the call and, and dryer, uh, sorry, desire and drive to evangelize. It just informs how we evangelize, how we pray about our evangelism as we're about to step out and do it. It definitely informs that. So we, we, know, we know that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're spiritually discerned. So the wisdom of God is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the secret to a happy life. That's the good life, believing that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life to come and eternal life right now, a relationship with Christ. So if you haven't trusted in Christ, turn to him today, even now, and be saved and experience eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray, again, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Sanctify us, Lord. Change our thinking. Change our living. Empower us to put our sin to death. Give us a desire for holiness, a desire for obedience, a desire to speak your name to those around us. Give us discernment as we live our lives and and look for opportunities to share Christ with those that, that you bring in our paths. Lord, we know that what's true about our conversion is also true now. We know that there's no true spiritual growth without your spirit being at work in us. And so we pray, Lord, for more of your spirit, more obedience to your spirits, more willingness to to heed his conviction. We pray for gifts of the spirit. As we live life together in the church, there would be more gifts of the spirit. We pray for people right now who don't speak in tongues, that they would begin to speak in tongues. We pray for people right now who don't prophesy, that they would begin to prophesy. We pray for people who are nervous about praying for healing, that they would pray for healing and see healings in their lives. We pray for evangelism to happen. We pray that gifted evangelists would rise up in our midst and that you would anoint their conversations as they step out in courage and boldness and that there would be conversions as a result of that, Lord. But we are so completely dependent upon you, and we just acknowledge that this morning. We are completely dependent upon you. We are jars of clay. Jars of clay, you describe us as. Precious in your sight, and yet we are jars of clay. And yet there's this treasure in us, this Holy Spirit in us. Temples of the Holy Spirit. You describe us as temples of the Holy Spirit individually and as a church. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let our lives burn with the Holy Spirit. Wherever we are on our spiritual journey, if it's the first day or the last day on this earth, Lord, 
Grow us, change us. Let your spirit be free to do his work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.